They've been after us from the beginning. When we became followers of Jesus, they've been after us and they're after us even more and more now. It's been really, really hard. Now when we followed, we were Jews, we followed the Old Testament, we believed and trusted in that and then we heard about Jesus and we started following Jesus and it's been amazing but man, it's been hard. The rest of the Jewish community haven't been after, they didn't like us at all. And so we've been able to meet in these small places like this but shh, because it's got worse. Since Rome burnt down when Nero set the fire and blamed us, they've been after us. They've been closing down places. They've been looking at to persecute us. They've been killing some of us. They've been making it really hard. And we're the only ones left. Shh. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering, are we right? Is this what we should be doing? Is this Jesus really who he claims? Is it really all about... Where, where, where is God in all this? Has he stopped speaking to us? Has he left us? All this persecution, all these people after us, is that like, some of us have already left. You can remember, you can remember Thaddeus, he took off while, a while ago, didn't he? Remember the other family that were with us as well? They've taken off too, they've left us, but it's just us. Has God left us? Well, I think I've heard that someone sent us a letter. It's a sermon. It's a preacher. He's, he sent a letter to us so that we could listen, so he could encourage us. We're going to listen to that. That's why you're all here today. We're going to listen to this man. He's preached. He's written it down for us to encourage us. They, they're going to come forward now and read it for us. Listen. Shh. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thanks, Sue. Book of Hebrews. Uh, that little intro was hopefully giving you a bit of a picture of what uh, we're going to be looking at and the background to the Book of Hebrews. We don't actually know exactly who wrote the Book of Hebrews, uh, but we do know where it was written and what, into the situation it was written. And we do know that uh, the people that they're writing to were like the people I was talking to you. They're a persecuted small house church, uh, which are finding it really, really tough. Uh, and so Hebrews, is, you know, sometimes when we read it, it's like in a letter, so we think it's like a book, but it's really more like a sermon. It's more like uh, this person who is someone who loves and cares for these people in Rome at this time, who's finding it really difficult under persecution. And, and this person is, is preaching to them. Uh, he's bringing a word to them to encourage them in what's going on with that. And so that's a good background to keep in mind because it really helps us focus why does he say what he says. Because in some ways it's not always, it's not quite as uh, logical as you see in the book of Romans and it's not just a story in a sense, a progressive thing as you see in uh, the Gospels. But this is like he's wanting to ram home some really important points so that these people can stand and believe and trust in the middle of huge persecution that's going on around them. So that's going to help us as we think about what's going on. And I think when, when we look at this, uh, what the writer or the preacher is trying to do is he's trying to show us uh, how big Jesus is. Uh, how many of you have either read C.S. Lewis' books, The Chronicles of Narnia, or watched the movies if you haven't read them? Yep, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, you'll know that, uh, I don't know whether you know this, but C.S. Lewis who wrote those books is a Christian and he actually wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia almost as a picture of what Christianity is about. It's, when you start from uh, the very first and work your way through, it's like a journey in living to be a Christian and follower of Jesus. And if you know that within that story, then Aslan is Jesus, if you haven't picked that before. Uh, but he's Jesus in, in the book, and you'll see him come at different times, and uh, that's how he works. And then you've got Lucy, uh, who you can just see on the edge. And there's a great scene, there's lots of great scenes, and this is from one of the uh, ones recently that have been put out. But there's some really great things in that book. If you want to read them and think them through, they're fantastic. But there's one great scene where Lucy, after a while, has uh, seen uh, Aslan, but then hasn't seen him for a while. And then in the mist, in the dark, uh, she sees him and she runs to him. And as she runs to him, she gives, uh, gives him a great big cuddle. And this is like a lion that's really ferocious and he... Grabs, she grabs her by the mane and, and he says to her, welcome child. It's a beautiful picture. And, and she says, as she's grabbing him and holding him and they fall to the ground and she's in between his paws, uh, she looks up at him and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And, uh, and 
and, and she, sorry, and she, yeah, she's warm, so Aslan, you're big. And then, uh, and he says to her, that's because you're a little older, dear. And she says, no, isn't it because you're bigger? And this is what he says to her, he says, I am not, but every year you grow, I'll become bigger. It's interesting, isn't it? Every year you grow, I'll become bigger. Because it's normally the opposite, isn't it? When we get bigger, things get smaller. I can remember this rock in Bridport that we used to jump off when I was a really little kid. And it was huge. You used to think it was a height. It was like you were really a big Superman if you could jump off this rock. I went back there just recently and I thought, man, I could almost just step off that. So small. It's normally the opposite, isn't it? But here, as Lucy hasn't seen Aslan for a while, she looks at him thinks he's got bigger and he says to a child, every year you grow older, I will get bigger. And I think that is the theme of Hebrews. As we're going to be looking through Hebrews, I think what the writer, the preacher of that time, was trying to do to the people who were there was try to enlarge their vision of Jesus. And I pray that's what it will be for us. As we work through this uh, from today through to Christmas just about, we're going to be doing almost 10 weeks on it, uh, that your vision of Jesus will get bigger. How about I pray and then we'll have a look at the passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you that in it we hear what you have to say to us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we work through the book of Hebrews together over the next few weeks, uh, that, Lord, you will grow our vision of Jesus. And as we grow our vision of Jesus, Lord, then we'll fall more and more in love with him and want to serve him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, have them open and... Uh, uh, keep along with me because we're going to sort of work through it. It's a, a bit of a larger passage today. But we're going to work through it fairly quickly and uh, pick up on some things for you. And, and I think the very first thing that you, uh, you want to pick up in this is the fact that... Oh, there's that. I forgot that one. There you go. That the God, we have a God who speaks. You see, that was probably one of the things that these guys were worried about, is that they're in the middle of persecution. Has God left them? What's going on? Why isn't he here? Why hasn't he done something? What's happening around here? Will he say something? Will he do something? And the writer comes straight to the point, doesn't he? Right at the beginning, as he's preaching, he says to them, very first there, in the the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So through the Old Testament, through all the people back then, he did speak back then and he did it in a number of different and various ways. But, at many times, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God is not silent. I don't really know of a person called Ingmar Bergman. Uh, he was a famous film producer. And there's a story, story about him. He was Swedish. And uh, there's a story about him. He was listening to some music by Stravinsky at one point in time and he was got so engrossed in the music that he almost went into this vision. And when he went into this vision, he went into this 19th uh, or 17th century big old church building and he was actually moving through that building in his vision. As he went through that vision, he saw the paintings, he saw the statues and he saw these stained glass uh, windows and he ended up standing in front of a stained glass window of Jesus. And as he was standing there and just gaining the sense of what that was about, he said to, the, uh, to that stained glass building uh, picture, he said, Speak to me. I will not leave the cathedral until you speak to me. 
Well, obviously the picture didn't speak to him, didn't it? Because he was looking at the wrong thing. It's not the picture that speaks, it's God who speaks through Jesus. He needs to look to Jesus that we find in his word here. You see, he was looking at the wrong one and he went on then to actually write a number of films about the silence of God. It really, it really shook him to the core. Uh, but he didn't look to the right one, did he? He looked at just this stained glass where he wanted to look to the real Jesus that we find in God's word and look to him. And that's what the writer is saying here. We need to look to Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, if we want to see what God speaks, then we come to Jesus because that's where God has spoken finally. Don't disregard the Old Testament and the prophets and what he's done in before, but they are all only really leading to the one. They are all bringing us to Jesus. You see, one of the problems that was happening for these people back then is that because these Jews were under persecution and they were followers of Jesus, they were tending to jump back and go back to become Jews. They thought, oh, we've done the wrong thing here. We're going to go back. We're going to become more Jewish. We're going to go back to what was back here. But the writer says, no. They were never told to go back there. It was to bring you to Jesus because that's where God has spoken in his fullest. That is where God has spoken in his finality. If you want to hear what God has to say, look at Jesus. Hear him. And why do we hear him? Why do we look at him? Because he is the most magnificent. These next couple of verses are amazing. And I'm just going to pack some really quick things out of it for you. Uh, go home and have a look at it. But have a look at what he says. Uh, he has spoken by his son, that is, he has spoken by Jesus, who he appointed heir of all things. Jesus is heir of everything because he created everything. We're going to see that in just a moment as well. Not only did he create everything that we see around us, the world, the universe and so forth, but he redeemed it all too. So not only does he own the world, but he owns us. He's the heir to everything. Through his life, death and resurrection, he's brought us into his family and he owns us. He's the heir to it. That's what it means. He has all of it. Uh, But not only that, he's the creator. Look at the next one he says. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. He made everything. Uh, If you were here last week, you would have seen Louis Giglio do a talk on the human body and how complex it was and how much it was put together. Well, he's done one about the universe as well. And it is really good. If you want to watch it, I've got it at home. Feel free to borrow it. Have a look at it. Uh, but when he, if you look at that and how big the universe is, do you know that to go from one side of our universe to the other side of the universe, it takes 100,000 light years to get from one side to the other? Do you know that it contains 100 trillion stars just in our universe? And do you know that we're only one of over 15,000 universes that are keeping on expanding and extending throughout? And he's created all of it. God has made everything. Jesus is the one who has created it. God speaks. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and the world is created. Uh, the action of speaking is the word. Who is the word? Jesus is the word. We find that in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. As God speaks, his action is done in Jesus. He is the one that creates it. He's the heir. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of it all. Look. Through him was made. The sun is the radiance of the glory and he holds it all together. The sustainer of all things by his powerful word. All of it. You and me are only here and only keep going 
because Jesus keeps it going. If Jesus took his hand off it for the minutest of seconds, we would not be here. We would not be here. Uh, it takes a whole different perspective, doesn't it, on that he's got the whole world in his hands. He has everything in his hands. Sustains it all. And he's the radiation, he's the glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus radiates God's glory. He just doesn't reflect it, he radiates it. It's like the difference between the moon and the sun. The moon doesn't have light in and of itself. It only reflects the sun back to us. That's why we see it. But the sun itself holds it all. And Jesus has that in him. He is the exact representation. He is the exact radiance of him. Jesus radiates God. If you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. Because he's the representative world, doesn't he? He's the exact representation. I like to use the fact that when we talk about Jesus, he is God with flesh on. The exact representation of God to us. He is God on earth. And he's the purifier. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's in verse 3 there. You see, the temptation was for these people to go back to the Old Testament and back to the Old Testament sacrifices and think that we had to work to be right with God, that we had to go through this sacrificial system. And this writer has come in and says, no, it's all been done by Jesus. The one and only sacrifice was done by him. Now, he's going to expand that later on in uh, Hebrews. He says, this is it. It doesn't need to be done anymore. The one payment for the stuff that we've done wrong through our whole life, every part of what we've ever done wrong from the moment we're born to the moment we die has been paid for by Jesus. He has purified us through his death and resurrection. He is the ultimate priest. We need no more. We need to go through no one else. He's done it completely on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, it's not that his life is finished. It's that his job in purifying us is finished. And then he sits down at the right hand of the Father there. And that's another thing they're saying, you see, because the priests in the Old Testament, they had to keep going in and out. They had to keep doing it all the time. They kept to keep doing the sacrifices and keep it happening. Jesus has finished it. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's a picture, not the fact that he's just there beside him all the time, but it's like, you know how we talk about you have a right-hand man? A bloke who's with you there, he's there all the time, he's, he does everything for you. That's what Jesus is. He's a right-hand man. He's right there. He's done it, and the picture of sitting down is that he's completed. All that needs to be done for you and I to be made right with God has been done by him. That's a phenomenal picture, isn't it? He is just wrapped up so much in just a couple of verses. He said, this is the majestic, this is the magnificent Jesus. Don't ever take your eyes off him. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. You see what he wants to do? He wants to take that poor person who came in here right at the beginning who's afraid and scared and worried and unsure about what's going on and take his eyes off himself and lift his eyes to Jesus and say, this is what is yours. Don't miss it. This is all yours. 
He wants to grow their vision of Jesus. He wants to grow our vision of Jesus. And so he says, not only is he bigger than this magnificent Jesus, all this, he's bigger than the angels, guys. You might have thought the angels are big, but Jesus is bigger than them. He is far bigger than them. And that's what verses 4, verse 3 to, three to 19 is all about. 15, sorry, is all about. So he loads again. So in, in two or three verses, he's just loaded the big picture of Jesus. And now in these verses 4 to 19, he loads upon it of just how big Jesus is and better than the angels. Now what the writer's going to do is because people back then were thinking that, well, angels are, are really important. Uh, Moses is really important. The priests are really important. All these other things are really important in part of understanding the Old Testament being Jewish. And so what the writer is trying to say is, don't go back there, guys, because you have something bigger and better than all them. And he starts it here with the angels. And so he starts there, he says uh, in verse 5, oh, verse 4, he says, So uh, he became so much superior to the angels as his name, he, his inheritance is superior to theirs. The name son, the name Jesus, that puts him in a completely different position to the angels. This is, in a sense, it's designated, it's not so much that he is born of God, but he is heir with God, he's inheritor of God, he is part of God there, he's the son. He is Jesus. So he's so much bigger in name. And, and the angels there to worship him. In verse 6, and again, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So the angels were to worship this Jesus, not the other way around. Angels are servants, uh, there it says in verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. They were servants to do God's will, to, to help things out and do other things. We're going to find more about that a little bit later. But Jesus wasn't that. But whom he says about Jesus says, Your throne on God will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He is the king. It's not just the servant that is used by God to do things. He is God's ruler, God's king above everything and over everything. Now the phenomenal thing about Jesus is even though he is that, he says, I've become a servant to you, doesn't he? I came to give my life to you. But that's the servant king that we have. So he's bigger than the angels that way too. Uh, the angels were created. In verse 10 it says, He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are your work of your hands. He's saying everything that's out there, he's including the angels, are all created things. But no, Jesus, they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Angels will... They may not last forever. They're created beings. God could decide for not them to live forever. But Jesus is going to live forever. He's eternal. He's far much bigger than them. And then finally says there, verse 13, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? See, angels are ministering spirits. Now, don't we don't want to diminish who they are in one sense. But what he's saying is they don't compare to Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruler over all. And the angels are to do his bidding, really. They're to worship him. They're to serve him. So don't go back and worship them. Stick with Jesus. 
stay with him. Now, I think something in this is really important, though, too, to pick up is that sometimes we write off angels too, don't we, because uh, they're a bit too hard to work out and what they're doing. Uh, but we do see here that they're important parts of what God has done, isn't it? And they're important parts of how God has operated in the past. They have been ministering servants. They have been wind and fire. They have brought God's word to people. They are ministering servants to us and they are still around today and they are still doing things today. Now sometimes we not even be able to work that out or see how that operates and uh, there's lots of stories out there that you can read about how angels have done things. Uh, we need to realise that they do do things and they are out there and they are out there for God to use to help us, to help his people. But they're not the ones we're to worship. They're not the ones that we're to bow down to. They're not the ones that we are to, to seek, to find out about stuff through, to, to make into something bigger than what they are. The one we're supposed to go to for that is Jesus because he's bigger than all them. And so he says there in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, after saying all this, after putting this amazing picture of who Jesus is, he says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The picture that uh, he paints here is of a boat that's anchor has gone adrift. That's the visual image that they would have got as they would have heard this and thought about this. It's this idea that at one point in time we've had our boat, we've stuck the anchor down, we've hooked it up, we've secured it, we're right, we're solid, we're there, we're safe. We've anchored ourselves in Jesus. But what has happened is the anchor as the anchor becomes loose, then the boat begins to drift and goes off and heads away. Most people who I know, who at one point in time were followers of Jesus, who now have either drifted away or headed off, most of the people who I know that have not been convinced by some other argument or some other proposition, or some other better belief system, or anything like that. Now, there are people who are that and do get convinced by that thing. I'm saying that that's not an option. But most people who I know who have been following Jesus, who aren't now, who have drifted away, haven't been that. What has happened has been is that something has come in and taken their attention. It might be sporting teams with their kids. It might be the fact that their workers got really busy at the time. It might be that they've got some project that's going on at home. It might be that they've, something's gone down the track and, and they've, got, or they've been away for a lot, but they've been travelling and they've headed off and then we don't see them again. We drift, don't we? I reckon it is the most dangerous thing and that's what this passage is saying. Throughout Hebrews, the preacher comes in and he warns. He says, I'm going to paint you the greatest picture you can possibly imagine of Jesus and I'm going to warn you not to drift, not to lose your anchor. Don't head away from this. Don't miss this. Now, most of you here this morning are here this morning, so you're not drifting at this very point in time. Maybe. Uh, it's great to hear maybe I'm preaching to the converted in some senses, but maybe not. Maybe you're in a situation where you're unsure. Maybe you've been feeling like these people are feeling that, uh, all, is all this Jesus stuff, is all this Christian stuff, is it real? You know, Maybe I can go back to my old lifestyle. Maybe I can go back to what I used to do. Maybe I can go back to whatever it is that was beforehand. Maybe you're thinking of tempted of going back to that. The preacher, the writer here, is saying don't do it. 
don't drift. Because if you drift, your anchor may be completely gone and then it's tragic. It says in a couple of verses, how important was it to follow what the angels did say and what they did profess and how they did help the prophets to speak in the old. How good was it to follow that? But how much more important is it that we follow Jesus? Because if we lose our anchor on him, then our eternity is in danger. He's going to say that continually throughout Hebrews. So I'm not sure where you're all at. I don't know whether you're feeling like your anchor's drifting or whether your anchor is secure. Hebrews is saying to you, the writer here, the preacher here is saying to you, secure it again. Secure your anchor in Jesus so that you don't drift. Make every effort not to let it drift. Now you can think there's a whole lot of ways of maybe doing that, isn't there? Don't miss Sunday gatherings. Don't miss your growth groups during the week. And don't get so caught up in something that you miss a few weeks of something because once you miss a few weeks of something, it's really hard to get back, isn't it? You get into habits, don't we? We get into habits and those habits become lifelong things in the end. It's dangerous stuff. And people say to me, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I don't need to go to a growth group to be a Christian. No, no, you're right, you don't. But man, you're on dangerous ground if you don't. That's what Hebrews is going to say. It's going to say to you continually and going to ram it home all the way. You are on dangerous ground if you're not connected. Because yes, you're right. To be a follower of Jesus means you need to just put your life in his hands and say, I trust and believe in you. But nowhere does Jesus leave it at that. Nowhere. Because the way that Jesus says, I want you to grow. He says, become disciples of me. Not just believers in me. Yes, I want you to trust me, but he says, I want you to grow in me. And the way I've designated that for happening is I've put people around you to do that. Don't neglect it. Because if you drift and your ankle comes unstuck and you fall away, eternity is in danger for you. That's the warning of Hebrews. That's the warning of the writer. But can I say to you that the big thing in this passage is how amazing is Jesus? That's the big thing of this passage really in the end, isn't it? It's a paint this amazing picture to you, for you so that when you see Jesus, he gets bigger all the time. Maybe. Oh, done it again. I'm a bit quick on that. Have that picture of Lucy who runs up to Aslan, who grabs him around the neck, who cuddles him and lays there and says, Are you getting... Are you, are you bigger? He says, every year you get older, I'm going to get bigger. I pray that's for you. That every moment, every second that you get to know Jesus more and more, that it blows your vision, become bigger and bigger of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken and we thank you that you have spoken through your son, Jesus. We thank you that in him we see you. In him we know you. In him we have relationship with you. In him everything in our life has been dealt with. All that we have done wrong has been purified in him and that our life now is wrapped up in him, Lord. And when we're wrapped up in him, Lord, we're wrapped up in you. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning that our vision of Jesus may have just grown that little bit more. And as our vision of Jesus grows, our love for him grows even more. And our anchor becomes even more solid in you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.